From breaking news to local stories happening where you live, this is the Jill Bennett Show podcast. Good afternoon and thank you so much for being with us on this busy Tuesday. We'll get right into it. BC politicians back at the legislature, they have gathered for the fall session. The seating arrangement looks a little different. Joining us to talk about that and what has been discussed so far is Richard Zussman, Global BC reporter based at the legislature. Richard, good afternoon to you. Just trying to catch my breath here, Jill. This is the phonetic three hours here so far yeah. since the session started. <laughs> well, I'm so glad you're here because I've been trying to keep tabs on it, and I know it's been very chaotic, a lot going on. So I appreciate that you've been able to catch your breath. How are things going? Yeah, so let's start with, I guess, a little bit of news. The provincial government saying that they're working on a policy now that would uh, fine BC ferries for sh- vessels that leave late due to staffing shortages. And this was a major story this summer and into last year as ferries grapples with staffing shortages like so many corporations. And it has led at times for people waiting up to seven, eight sailings. Uh, we have also seen challenges with vessels just leaving on time. So uh, Transportation Minister Rolf Fleming will speak to us in about 45 minutes. And uh, one of the things he's going to tell us about is what this is going to look like. So what sort of fines BC ferries may face if vessels leave late. And then there's just the makeup of the legislature, as you mentioned. I just spoke to John Rustad, the Conservative Party leader. He stood up in the House to ask questions for the first time as an official party, and it did not fail to get the attention of BC United and the media as expected. He asked this question about SOGI 123. It is an incredibly divisive issue. That's a program, an education tool that is supported by a vast majority of British Columbians. But there are some in this province who believe that the program is over-sexualized, that it takes the role of parents out of teaching sexual education. And Rustad asked uh, the premier about the program and getting rid of it or reviving it to make it less divisive. And in turn, the premier stood up and lambasted Rustad, calling his politics divisive, saying it was a dog whistle, that he was dragging this issue out that's not one of the ones that matters immensely to British Columbians. And what happened next, Jill, was the most telling, that as the premier wrapped up, his NDP colleagues stood up first, but then you started to see BC United MLA stand up, led by MLA Eleanor Sturko and Corinne Kirkpatrick standing up in support of the Premier. Everyone from BC United stood up except for three MLAs, Ellis Ross, Tom Shapitka, and Ben Stewart. They are all MLAs who at times have been rumored to be considering joining the Conservative Party of BC the dynamics are fascinating in the House, Jill. I've never seen anything quite like it. And we expect that Rustad will continue to hit away at these issues that have been described as, you know, social conservative issues, issues on the right of the political spectrum. But there's clearly British Columbians out there who believe that their voices are not heard by government around concerns they have. And Rustad is trying to be that voice for them. And it sounds like that, uh, that, like you said, with what happened with people standing and not, it sounds like his, is it possible that his party is going to get a little bigger? And this is something that Kevin Falcon has been asked about time and time again. And all these MLAs have in various times said they are supporting BC United for now. And there is a chance that as people grapple through the polls and try to understand the political lay of the land, 
Kevin Falcon is going to have a hard time keeping this caucus together. He continues to downplay the role of the conservatives. He says they are just um, they are fringe. They are uh, riding the coattails of the federal conservatives. That when people are asked at polls, they are confused about the branding. They don't know what BC United is. They do know what conservative is. Uh, but that, that that clarity will come over time as people start understanding what BC United is. But I think the bigger sense is that Kevin Falcon's got a problem on his hands. Uh, there are conservatives that do not believe they have a home with BC United anymore and are looking for an alternative, be it potential candidates, be it potential uh, voters, be it MLAs. And so we will see over time. I don't expect we will see anyone jump ship anytime soon, but clearly... There is dissension in the BC United ranks around some of these social conservative issues, and that's something that Kevin Falcon needs to tread very carefully because as he moves to the right, it leads to centrist voters thinking, well, what am I getting if I vote BC United? Falcon has tried his best to provide a centrist option for people. That's going to be harder and harder as we see these divisions within the party. Is this also going to overshadow, do you think, what's what the what the uh, politicians are there to do? I, I know you talked about this earlier, that uh, they are talking about housing. They're talking about, you asked uh, the Solicitor General about uh, this idea of means testing traffic fines. Is this overshadowing the the reason why we even have a fall session in the first place? There's lots of time to talk on CKNW, Jill. The news hour is an hour long. There's lots of stories that get to fill our newscast. I think for us, following this every day, you see um, the human conflict and it comes to the top. But the policy stuff is obviously what's most important for everyday British Columbians. And you raise some of those important issues. So, yes, some of the personal conflict at times will win out because it's drama-filled, but it's the issues that matter. So just to go through some of those issues you mentioned, uh, we saw this uh, instance in Metro Vancouver Young person driving a very expensive car. This frustrates a lot of people. The province uh, is considering looking at ways to uh, increase speeding tickets uh, based on how much people make their wealth. It's something that's been done in other countries, including Finland. It's something the UBCM actually approved as a motion to put forward to the province to consider. Mike Farnworth says it's complicated. We're going to have a story about that on the news hour tonight. If you want more details on that, it's obviously an interesting policy piece. The province also bringing forth legislation around emergency management. This is a big overseeing legislation around updating the way the province deals with floods and fires and emergency management issues. But there's clearly some really pressing issues there as well. The ombudsperson just sent out a report, released a report today saying that the way that the province does emergency services based on the 2021 fires is unfair. We saw those same issues this year. When I was in West Kelowna, I met so many people who were not getting access to the services they needed. They were out of their homes. They were either sleeping on cots at a hockey arena or forced to sleep on a couch while empty hotel rooms were sitting there and they couldn't link people up with hotel rooms. That's clearly an issue. Premier David Eby has promised to fix it. The province did not move on that today through legislation, but they have promised to do that as well. And then there's the whole issue of housing. We're going to get that legislation in a few weeks' time, but that's clearly a big issue. Affordability and housing is what BC United focused all in on today, and they keep bringing up the same talking points. BC's got the highest rents in North America. BC's got the highest housing costs in North America. BC's got the highest fuel costs in North America. All of that is clearly a challenge for affordability. 
This government's built on trying to address the affordability crisis, but they continue to struggle to grapple with, at least on the housing file, getting those prices down and finding people places to live. All right. And uh, Richard, just to circle back to what you you started with saying that, and this this is big, that BC ferries could be fined for late sailings. Uh, We actually have the uh, the Ferry Workers Union joining us a little bit later on in the show, but we should get more details on what those fines look like and what this, this will actually look like for BC ferries. Yeah, so this is coming in the spring, and it stems from a release that was sent out. We know that uh, rates are going to go up 3.2%, but it could have been much worse. The province is, in essence, keeping ferries afloat by providing half a billion dollars in support. But yeah, I'm going to chat with Minister Fleming in about uh, 45 minutes from now. So uh, we'll get that information out as quickly as possible. I'll send the audio in so that people can have a listen to what the minister has to say, because uh, clearly for those who use the ferry system, uh, the goal is to make it more efficient to ensure that money's being used properly to help keep fares down, but also to make sure that they are properly staffed to run those vessels on time. And these fines aren't coming anytime soon, but the promise seems to be it will be established in the spring and hopefully in place by next summer when we start seeing those big weekends, May long weekend, Canada Day long weekend, August long weekend, where we saw so many challenges. Won't be for this upcoming Thanksgiving long weekend, which is going to be chaos on BC ferries with a vessel out and very busy travel season. But the goal is to have these fines in place by next summer. All right. I will be uh, waiting. We will all be waiting for those details. Richard, thank you so much. My pleasure as always. Thanks, Joe. Well, there has been no shortage when it comes to stories about red tape and bizarre rules that have been on the books for many years in some cases, not being allowed to stand with a drink in your hand in a restaurant because they have a certain type of license, the months, if not years in some cases, of trying to change the license or update it. But the city of Vancouver says that less than three months since establishing the hospitality sector working group, it has become a catalyst. These are the city's words, a catalyst for innovation and collaboration. And they have been able to spearhead important changes by breaking down those barriers. So is it actually working? Joining me now is Jeff Guinard, executive director of Able BC. That's BC's Alliance of Beverage Licensees. Jeff, thank you so much for taking some time today. No, it is my pleasure. Always happy to talk about the Lambert and liquor policy. <laughs> well, uh, this is a release put out by the city going through uh, all of what they say are accomplishments mm-hmm. and ways that have simplified the process so businesses can instead focus on growth and innovating. Uh, have you noticed a difference when it comes to uh, licenses and dealing with the city of Vancouver? Well, it, it's a good start. I'll say that. But let's be clear that this is just the start. So the good news here is when Mayor Ken Sim and ABC came to power uh, in the last election, they talked a really good game, right? They said, we are going to make Vancouver fun again, get rid of that no fun city uh, rules. And with the business background that the mayor brought in, he was suggesting that they were going to start to find ways to streamline, you know, cut red tape and all of that. So one of the challenges that we were having as advocates for you know, the industry is, you know, we would deal with uh, city staff as much as we could, but there was just a broken link getting the right information to the right people and then getting the information to council sometimes. So this working group is designed to short circuit all of that, uh, and it has been working so far. 
And I will say we, we greatly appreciate it because the hospitality industry in particular right now is that we, we still haven't recovered from the pandemic. A lot of people are still struggling just to keep their businesses going. Uh, and we can't afford these endless delays. And when you start to look at it, there are a bunch of policies out there that just don't make sense. And that's what council is trying to do by creating this working group. Let's find the ones that are in the way of businesses that aren't really serving any public good and just make them better for citizens so businesses can get back on their feet. So when we look at kind of the bullet points of what the city put out as far as an update Mm -hmm. today, uh, saying things like streamlined liquor licensing. So businesses can now submit development permits and liquor licensing applications together as concurrent applications. Uh, Unless you're in the industry, that doesn't that doesn't sound huge. But but how big of a change is that? Well, think of it this way. I mean, you have to submit. Uh, <laughs> well, actually, I'll start with this. So the liquor licensing is primarily the job of the provincial government. So the, the province is the one that issues the liquor licenses. Then the city of Vancouver has a whole additional set of bureaucracy designed to get you set an application for a local license. But before you can get your liquor license from the city, you also have to have a, a development permit to ensure the property you're putting the liquor license on can have a liquor license. So I now have three applications going in. Each of them have months of delays, and you'd have to get the approval for one before you can get another one, before you can get another one. So the whole idea here is why can't we do these things simultaneously? And also, why can't we find ways to you know, streamline those forms or request less information I mean, the situations we're trying to solve are, you know, for example, last year, um, I had to go to city council with a bunch of folks in ministry because one of uh, the pubs on Davy Street had a lease on the place next door, literally next door. All they wanted to do was extend their business. And the city said, well, no, it actually has to have a separate liquor license. And you're like, what? <laughs> the province has no issue with it. And they're the ones who issue the liquor licenses. So you know, things like that are sometimes, you know, we, we have found that the city has some strange rules instead of just having one license the way the province does. They'll divide it into a whole bunch of different classes based on size. And then they'll have distance criteria between some of those classes. And it's different if you're downtown or not downtown. So you, you start adding, adding on bureaucracy on top of it, and it just becomes difficult to the point of it immobilizes people and they take years to get through an application and lose thousands and thousands of dollars. So little changes like that do have a massive positive impact. Well, and I think one of the ones that people could actually see that wasn't really happening behind the, the behind the scenes, and I don't know if this has changed or not, but it really came out with the pandemic, with all of the temporary patios, and it was mm. great. We've got these outdoor seats. We can do this more capacity, but then you would see a place that looked to be empty or half empty and say, well, why... Why can't we sit in here? Well, because the yes. number of seats is still the same and we've expanded the patio, but we haven't expanded. We don't have a higher occupancy. Are things like that being dealt with? Because it doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. Yeah, and some of that's the province and some of that's the city. And part of what this working group is doing is trying to make sure that the city is doing everything it can to work as quickly and efficiently with the province as they can and vice versa. And when it comes to all these temporary patios, which, I mean, if you look at a, a successful legacy from the pandemic, the fact that we as an industry built over 2,000 you know, outdoor temporary patios during the pandemic was massively successful. But the way we did it was most municipalities just said, you know what, let's say yes, and we'll deal with the paperwork later. Now we're dealing with the paperwork, and there's a difference between how we deal with those patios if they're on public property or private property and whether or not you have, you're allowed to get a capacity increase. And then this is where the working group does really good work. Um, you end up in a spot where you look at those patios and the city engineers will say, well, it's, you know, distance from a curb and are we blocking the storm drain? So there's a lot of questions that have to be asked, but it kind of paralyzed the process with complexity. So this group is trying to 
point those challenges out to city council when possible so they can make good decisions and say, well, is it really important that we make a person tear down a patio because it was built, you know, a foot over certain lines or something like that? Um, or it's on a street where maybe there was some parking that uh, people had wanted before. So with the city came up like, well, okay, you can have the, the patio during the summer season, but in the winter season when it's raining, it makes sense to maybe take it down. So lots of little things like that are being sorted out now. Another one that I, that I love is sometimes the city has bylaws requiring certain kinds of licensees to do things. Like once you get to a certain capacity, like a thousand, they require you to have certain security requirements and like metal detectors. So maybe that makes sense in some universe, but trust me, we, we work with our insurance companies on risk management plans. We don't need a local bylaw telling us to have X number of metal detectors from, you know, written by someone who doesn't understand that business. Because it also means if you put in a movie theater and start serving alcohol in there, we'd suddenly have to have metal detectors for it. So things that just weren't imagined when these rules were created, and a lot of times we're saying, just get rid of them or streamline in a way that makes more sense. Yeah, that, uh, yeah, a bit of a surprising one for sure. Uh, I know, according to this as well, the city is, is still exploring the options to reduce or remove distancing requirements for liquor, liquor yeah. establishments. Is this for, oh, my word, if a child happens to see somebody enjoying a beer that the world <laughs> is going to end? Or what does this look well, like? Uh, yeah, let me tell you, dumb, this one is for me. So uh, the city takes, you know, the provincial liquor license. What if it's the province, they just want to you a pub or a bar or your restaurant, right? You focus on liquor service, you focus on food that happens to serve liquor. The problem, the city of Vancouver then goes and creates six subclasses in there based on the size. So if you're a cocktail bar that has 50 seats, they would require you to be, if you're downtown Vancouver, 50 meters away from any other cocktail bar that has 50 seats. If you're not downtown, they require you to be 500 meters away. So economically, that's just stupid and makes it very difficult for us to create a vibrant entertainment space. You want multiple different you know, establishments in a close area so you can create a vibrant entertainment district that people can come down and you, know, you have dinner at one place, drinks at another beforehand, drinks afterwards, and enjoy yourself. These rules are anti-economic in that way. The only thing that certainly makes sense is you want to say, you know, don't put a, a thousand seat venue in a residential area, obviously, right? But that's about land use policy in the city. So they can govern it with bylaws and say, you can have a liquor establishment here. You can't have one here. That makes sense. That's what other municipalities do. But then saying you have to be 50 meters from this or 100 meters from that or 750 meters from that. I don't think anybody understands why those rules are in place. And how does that or does that have any impact? We've seen so many craft breweries and distilleries and smaller operations open up. And a lot of times they are clustered together. Does that does that mm-hmm. play into that as well? Yeah, craft breweries, this is also one of the interesting challenges, have slightly different rules in those cases uh, than sort of liquor primaries, which is like a pub or a bar or a restaurant. Um, but those are the kind of things that we're, we, we want to be able to cluster them together because it's a wonderful experience for a, a consumer to go taste a few different beers at a few different craft breweries or taste the food at different restaurants or taste the beers at different pubs. All that makes a lot of sense. They want to go through each of these establishments. But when you put an artificial distance criteria, it makes it, first off, harder for those businesses to find a location. And then if the landlords you know, understand this and you get a location that happens to be the right distance, they'll overcharge you for it because they can in this situation because we've created a scarcity of supply. That is not helping our economy. It's not helping our city. And it's certainly not helping any of the businesses or consumers who are just trying to build something vibrant. And uh, so, so it sounds like there's still a lot of work to be done. Like you said, this is a good first start. Are there priorities or things that you would like to see next or really dealt with in, in a faster way? 
Yeah, so this is a great start, and I and I do want to give the mayor and council credit for this. This is a kind of process that always leads to positive policy reforms. It's better for industry, and I and I want industry to know that we are working on these things behind the scenes. And I think that's one of the things that mayor and council are trying to do is let everyone know that we know it's difficult up there. We know we're overly officious. We're overregulate. We're trying to fix it. One of the simple smart things that uh, they could do is Vancouver has a way of making all of these applications go to full council votes and full approval. Other jurisdictions will appoint a chief licensing inspector and delegate some of those authorities of council into that individual who's hired with expertise to look at these applications and find out, okay, are we abiding by the right rules? You know, and, and if they turn down an application, you can always appeal to council. But think of how expensive it is. I mean, how much does you know, all the city staff and all the councillors make per hour? You're in this meeting with council. You get your five minutes to say something, and then you maybe have one concerned citizen who raises a point. And it's just it, all of a sudden this process is difficult and expensive and delayed. And if it doesn't work that meeting, you get on the next schedule. So we're like, okay, why don't we have a chief licensing inspector who can handle these sorts of things? Let's get rid of some of these nonsensical distance criteria that don't really achieve any purpose. Uh, I mean, they, and I, they're unique in the province of British Columbia. I, mean, I advocate in every every jurisdiction in this province, and no one else does this. And also, we have moratoriums in the number of seats. Let's you know, let's just try and rethink why are we putting handcuffs on business right now when they're not doing anything that would not add to the vibrancy of the city. It's a good question. Jeff, thank you so much. Always great to have you on the show. And I know we will talk to you about this again, but thank you so much for your time today. Oh, it is my pleasure. Good luck out there. This is an idea that I'm guessing is going to get mixed response and it's being talked about on Vancouver Island. I'm sure it's being talked about in other communities as well, but it's the idea of turning golf courses into housing. Some saying that golf courses take up too much space, especially when we're talking about urban settings and that space would be better used if it was turned into housing. Well, joining me now to talk a bit more about this is Zach DeVries, a Saanich councillor. Thank you so much for taking some time today. Thanks for having me on. Uh, how did this first come about? Uh, that, uh, And I know there was a story, uh, Czech News has been covering this, but some developers uh, though, or people looking at housing, uh, bringing up this idea of perhaps looking at golf courses. I think that there's been a broader conversation around municipal lands and, and how that tool could be used to deliver affordable housing. As we know, uh, one of the biggest variable costs and housing costs is the cost of land. And so whenever you're looking at publicly owned or municipal lands, it effectively uh, removes that land cost and provides a lot greater of an opportunity to deliver deeply affordable housing. And so uh, these are things that have been completed in cities like Victoria, uh, where they have added housing to one of their fire halls. Uh, they are being initiated in places like right here in Saanich, where we're looking to renew the Nellie McClung Library and add uh, affordable housing in the airspace above that new library. And we'll be looking towards the Saanich Operations Centre as well. And we'll probably be doing a deep look at all of our land holdings because of what a unique opportunity uh, it offers uh, to deliver deeply affordable housing. And in the case of the, the golf course, and is it this being raised, do you think, as well, because this particular golf course, this is something that's owned by the District of Saanich? Uh, absolutely. I, I think that uh, 
uh, there's a, a wide range of interest in, in all of our uh, municipal lands because of the opportunity uh, that they have. And so obviously uh, a publicly owned site uh, that's 133 acres has garnered uh, some interest. Uh, you know, there's no immediate plans uh, with the municipality on respect to this particular site because we'll have our hands full for the next uh, decade probably uh, with some other crown jewel sites, two of which I've already mentioned. Right. And and looking at the, the other sites, you mentioned the Nellie McClung Library and the idea of the airspace above the library. Is is that an easier sell, do you think, to people saying we, like many other places, are in desperate need of more housing and, and going for the airspace above a library as opposed to talking about removing a golf course? For us, it's about sequencing of municipal priorities and facilities. And so one of the most immediate needs we have is renewal of that library. Uh, followed uh, very closely and perhaps a little bit more important, the update to our Spanish Operation Center. And uh, essentially, if we're going to be investing a lot of capital resources in renewal of these facilities, which is desperately needed, uh, we should not miss opportunities to add housing. And so that's how uh, these have, have come to be the priority because they're aligned with other municipal projects. And we're looking to really make the biggest possible impact that we can uh, by making sure that we add housing in these investments. And how challenging is it when looking at adding housing and the, this need for housing and making sure there is still that balance with green space and with park-like settings within within districts and within cities? I, I think they need to go hand-in-hand hand as we have uh, uh, you know, higher-density housing and people have less uh, private space. Uh, to act out their lives, so it's important that we're adding public spaces. And I actually think this is where uh, some of the golf course debate has entered, which is this is a 133-acre parcel that uh, is in an area that is heavily park deficient. And actually, the district is looking for a park on the western side of Shelburne Avenue. And so I, I think that's part of why there's particular interest amongst the community uh, in this space, it's not something that we're uh, looking to do uh, immediately, but we are looking uh, to be consistently adding green space. And so we do have a park acquisition strategy in the district where uh, we are looking at a bunch of opportunities and strategies to add green space because we know it's good for people's health. It's good for their well-being. Uh, it's uh, something that's going to be increasingly important. And and do you think too? There's is there a bit of a, a divide, or or certainly a different way, a different school of thought? Whether we're talking about a golf course where people pay uh, to play golf and to to go and spend time on this on this green space, as opposed to something that's owned by the district that becomes a park. Maybe there is housing adjacent, but becomes a park for anybody to use free. Uh, well, not free. Taxes obviously pay for it, but that you wouldn't have to pay to go onto the park space and to uh, to uh, appreciate it and use it that way? I, I think that whenever you're talking about municipal assets, uh, there's always this question of how widely can it be used? What is the greatest public good that can come from these assets? And, and how can we extend that to the most possible people? And so I think that's where a lot of this discussion has emerged from, which is uh, people want to see uh, any municipal asset, no matter what it is, uh, to go to the greater good of our community. 
Well, it's certainly an interesting one. And like you said, so this isn't up next or anything that Saanich is going to be dealing with. It sounds like there will be other other housing uh, developments and such that come or other uh, assets that the district is going to be looking at uh, first or before this even maybe even becomes a serious discussion. Uh, uh, certainly, we have a lot of projects uh, on, on the books and being initiated when it comes to housing, uh, as well as parkland. And so we're going to continue uh, to execute on these because I think that uh, while most communities across the province are pressed for both housing and in park space, we're looking to uh, deliver on these and really meet that challenge. Well, it uh, is an interesting discussion, certainly, that is being had. Councillors Active Rees, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for joining the show today. Thanks for having me. Well, this is a headline that kind of makes you do a double take. This is, well, there are many different news agencies reporting on this, but the CBS News headline is Paris is crawling with bed bugs. They're even riding the trains and a ferry. And this is just a little bit from an NBC story about that as well. Bed bug sightings in trains and movie theaters across the city are becoming the new normal, leaving residents and visitors on edge. It really traumatized me, says this woman. I'm actually taking the train right now, and to be honest, I'm not serene. No, not serene at all. So we are going to take a look at this and talk about bed bugs in general. How do you protect yourself? Mike Laundrie is with us, the owner of Westside Pest Control. Mike, thank you so much for doing this. Oh, of course. Thanks for having me on. Why do you think we, we are seeing this? And I know it's not only Paris, but a lot of attention is being paid to Paris as they get ready to host the Olympics. Uh, there's, there's a lot of fashion shows taking place, and certainly this isn't the headline that they would like to see out there. But why do you think we would see a city like Paris where literally crawling with bed bugs? Well, I mean... To be completely honest, I don't think they're probably any more crawling than they were 6 or 12 or 18 months ago or even 5 years ago um, uh, without uh, doing inspections into a bunch of their buildings 5 years ago. And now my my honest guess would be um, it's probably someone's ulterior motive to get this story into the media more than more than anything else. I, I know everyone loves a, a great... Uh, um, a uh, story like this uh, when big events are, are coming up. Um, bedbugs have been steadily on the rise to some degree in, in, in some cities. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, there's definitely lots of things that people can, can do and obviously cause for concern when there's going to be a large volume of people coming into, into any area for a big event. This is often what will drive bedbug populations up. But, um, Overall, things have been relatively steady for about the past 10 years on uh, the bed bug front. All right. What exactly are they and, and how do they get into your or onto your clothes and into your bedding? Well, bed bugs will happily transfer from, from, uh, from one location to, to another. Um, uh, they can be transported by by. by by luggage, um, uh, but most commonly they, uh, they they essentially reproduce and spread out from usually from from unit to unit in in hotels or in multi-unit housing buildings. Um, as their populations grow, they uh, um, 
will will go from 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 unit to unit. So it's it's really important. Um, one of the reasons uh, why they often spread is it's one of those things that people don't like to talk about. Certainly not with their friends and neighbors. Um, but uh, it's actually really important to do so because um, if they're in one uh, if they're in one apartment, they're probably in other ones and just dealing with yours probably means that you will get them back again unless they're dealt with in the building as a whole. Hmm. Do they though, are, are they something that they live in, in, the, in just outdoors or if they, if they're not coming in and not in your home, where do we find them naturally? Uh, no, they've been, they've been living around, they've been living around, around people and there's different forms. Um, there's, there's similar bugs. Uh, there's, there's, there's bat bugs. Um, uh, bed bugs will live with, they generally live with people and they happily reside in close proximity to where people sleep um, or, or regularly sit, which is why they're normally located close to a bed and they're normally or, or on a couch. Um, and they're actually normally um, uh, in the upper half of the, of the bed because they're attracted to heat and co2 Um, uh, so they can normally be found fairly close to where a person um, rests at night and size wise i know you you can see them can't you or how big are they yeah they're about the size of a watermelon seed usually red in 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 color um, and uh, similar in shape to a watermelon seed as well fairly fairly flat um, a little bit fatter than a watermelon seed, but uh, a qu- quite similar in size to that. And what should people be looking for then if if you suspect maybe you have this issue or your building has this issue? What are the signs or how do you find out if you do have them? I mean, um, people often have them and don't know about it. Uh, um, so, so bites is often one of the first signs. Um, um, sometimes like lines of, of, of small bites, like uh, sort of clustered um, is, is a sign, but everybody reacts differently. Um, and uh, there's lots of other insects that can cause bites too. So um, that's one of the first things that's really important is, you know, don't freak out and, and there's no cause for alarm just because you, you, you find a bite. Um, uh, but that can be a, a first sign, um, you know, and especially if it's an, in a season where people aren't outside as much, going into the wintertime, if you're seeing bites, that might be a sign. Um, and then doing an inspection of the mattress, uh, it's always good to get a professional to come in to do the inspection, but that's one of the first places to check is around mattress seams because they like to hide in little cracks and, and crevices. They're really only active for a very short period of time, and that's to come out for a meal at night, and then they spend almost the entire rest of the 24 hours not moving and, and hunkered down in close proximity. Hmm. Uh, should people be concerned then about traveling? And like you said, it probably hasn't changed all that much in the past few years. But when we see these headlines about Paris and, and the, the concern there, should people, people be concerned that when you're traveling, you might have a higher risk of being exposed and or worse, bringing them home with you? Absolutely not. Travel is wonderful. Get out there and and and, and, and travel and and uh, um, don't let something like like insects stop you from 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 traveling. There's a, a million different things that could happen to all of us any day, no matter where we where we're, where we're living. So get get out and travel. But um, um, be, being vigilant is never is never a bad idea. So again, 
90% of them, unless you've got a crazy infestation, are usually going to be concentrated near the head of the bed. So uh, if I stay in a hotel and if it's, you know, whether it's a three-star or a, or a five-star, I just pull the, the, the sheets back on the, on, the, on the top half of the bed and, and have a quick look around the, around the seams. Um, you, like, again, you can see them. They're sort of the size of a watermelon seat, uh, the adults, and, um, and they leave little, little tiny droppings. So if somebody took a fine tip permanent marker and kind of dabbed it a bunch of, of, of little times in, in, in one area, that's what the bed bug droppings look like. So those are the two things to, to look for. If you don't see that right away, just relax and enjoy your holiday. What would you do, though, if you're at a hotel and you do that and you see either the bugs or evidence of the bugs? What do you do at that point? Uh, yeah, I would uh, I would ask for ask for a, a new room, um, uh, you know, and some people go as far as to, you know, they say, oh, well, don't put your luggage on on your bed and and different things like that. Um, uh, it's 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 again because they're attracted to heat and co2 and they really don't do a lot of roaming around you know, if you put your suitcase down on the floor and there happens to be bed bugs um around the around the headboard the likelihood that they're going to transfer into your suitcase is is quite unlikely possible but quite un- unlikely but that's one extra step that can be taken um you know before you throw all your things onto the bed do the check first and then uh, and then put your stuff away Phone lines are open. If you have a question for my guest, Mike Laundrie, the owner of Westside Pest Control, is with us talking about a story out of Paris that is making international headlines that Paris is having a bit of a problem when it comes to bed bugs in hotels, on trains, on ferries. And Mike, just before the break, you were talking about how to uh, lift up the mattress or lift up the corner if you're in a hotel room to see if there are bed bugs or any signs of them. What do you do if you do have them? Say you're doing that at home and you notice that, yes, this is unfortunately happening in your home. How do you treat them? Uh, then you would definitely want to call, uh, call in a professional company to, uh, to, to deal with them. Bed bugs are not something like, like pavement ants where, you know, there's some different home remedies like cinnamon and borax and sugar and stuff like that. Um, when, it, when it comes to bed bugs, it's not a stress that you want to take on because, it's likely something that um, you may have minimal su- success with, but um, um, there's a lot of time and energy and, and effort and also collaboration between both the, the tenant and the pest control company to ensure um, successful er- eradication. Um, and one of the main reasons being there's actually some really great products out now, um, some of them biological products, but there's still commercial grade that um, that licensed pest control companies will have access to and will be able to apply properly after hours and hours and weeks of, of training and learning how to do it well. Um, so, yeah, tr- trust your pest control company. Uh, I, I love DIYers for almost all pest issues, but this is one that you want to get done by somebody uh, with the know-how. All right, let's go. We do have a question. Lee is on the line. Lee, what is your question for Mike? Hi, my question is about poultry mites. And first time in 15 years, they've ended up being hit by them. I get them on me when I go out to the coop. I'm trying to get rid of them. I may end up burning down the coop and replacing it. But how long before you think I can actually get rid of them? They're not running around the house, thankfully my house 
but they do get on meat, and they're gross. Uh, so, sorry, I, I missed the first one. Which, which, which kind of mites did you say they were? Poultry. Poultry mites. They're not the little red regular bird mite. They're a poultry mite. Oh, okay. And uh, do, do you work in a, in a poultry facility? Is that uh, is that? No, no. no, just keeping keeping pets. I see. Okay, okay. Um, uh, to be honest, it's not poultry mites aren't aren't a, aren't a, a specialty of of, of ours. Uh, uh, doing structural pest control, it's not something that we come across um, often. I I know that there are different kinds of mites. Um, um, sometimes. We run into them. Uh, people have pigeon issues. They, that might be a similar, a similar kind of kind of mite. Um, and uh, yeah, like having if you if you have pets, having them having them treated is going to be the best form of action. Um, and then eliminating any any nesting areas if if there are something if it, if there are pigeons, for example, uh, living in an attic or crawl space, but uh, Sorry, I don't have a, a magic bullet for that one. All right, Lee, uh, thanks for that question, that call. Uh, Mike, you mentioned that, yes, there are many things you can DIY. Uh, bed bugs not recommended. Are there things you could do, though? Uh, and again, I, I'm with you on traveling. Traveling is great and encouraged. Uh, I, I mentioned this earlier when I was uh, chatting. We were uh, crossing over uh, with Scott Shantz, That So I recently got home from traveling in Europe, and I took everything out of an abundance of caution. I put my backpack in the freezer. I, I washed everything on high heat and did all of that just again out of an abundance of caution does that make a difference oh i mean it doesn't it doesn't hurt if you have any concerns of that you know if you if you thought you may have stayed somewhere um or or i mean they they, they are out there so if you you know if you're traveling and you, and you run into somebody and um and they say oh we just had a bed bug issue and you, thought, and you think oh you've been staying in the room next to me for the last four and a half days um uh, then yes, high heat is the best thing. Um, uh, believe it or not, bed bugs can survive in very cold temperatures. So um, um, heat is always what's recommended. Um, that's always a part of a successful treatment plan: is 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 laundering any items um, and any any uh, any clean items don't have to go right through the washer and and dryer. They can just get tumble dried at high heat. That's the portion that's going to going to do um do the most work at killing not just the adults but also um the the eggs as as well um so 20 minutes on on high heat um and uh you know if you've got a backpack take it to a commercial uh laundry facility and uh and dry it that way all right let's uh, try and get a couple more calls in here gordon is on the line gordon what's your question hi thanks for the call um i'm curious if you have any advice to deal with mice in rvs Mice and RVs, um, yeah, yeah. So, uh, uh, good old-fashioned snap traps are, are always the method of, of choice. Um, but when it comes to mice, you sometimes need every weapon in the arsenal. Um, uh, so, locating where they're getting in is another key, uh, another key point. Um, uh, so, trying to seal up access points with wire mesh, uh, aluminum flashing, and once and if you've eliminated, or if you have an RV and you don't have any mice, um, using an ultrasonic device can be can be a good deterrent, but it won't get rid of them. So the important thing is 
is, is snap traps. If you must, rodenticide um, and sealing off the access points where they're getting in. Now, if you think they're coming and going, and if you have a friend's house that you can park the RV at for a couple of weeks, that's often a good idea. Um, because if they're coming and going throughout day to day, move it somewhere else, let them get habituated to a different warm, cozy place at night, maybe the neighbor's RV or, or truck down the street. And, uh, and, then, and then once it's all sealed up, bring it back again. All right, Gordon, thanks for that call. And my apologies if you were on the line and didn't get through. You can email me and I can pass your uh, question on to Mike Laundrie. Mike, we're right out of time. But as always, thank you so much for joining us and for talking more about pests today. Of course. Thank you, Jill. Thanks for listening to the Jill Bennett Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop? Tune in to the Jill Bennett Show live from noon till 3 on 980 CKNW. Have a question or comment? Send me an email, jill at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.